Welcome to Sports Performance Radio, the science of athletic excellence. Welcome to Sports Performance Radio. I am your host, B. Chavez. And as always, I'd like to thank each and every one of you for tuning in and uh, helping make this show the success that it is. Today's show is one that I am very, very excited to bring you. And I know I say that every month, but in this case, it's really, really true. When I set out to do this show, I had a number of kind of little rabbit ear key topics that I wanted to cover. Some nutritional points, uh, fat loss, muscle gain, um, um, pharmacology, maybe a PED show, which I've not yet tackled, and this particular show, Muscular Hypertrophy for Sports Performance. It was literally the second item on my list I wanted to cover right after my first show. And the problem with this show has been that I just have not found a expert sufficient to cover the topic. It's just been a real problem. There's loads of people yammering on about building muscle and hypertrophy and all sorts of things, but when you pin them down, they really can't talk specifics. And if they can, it's just ideas. They don't have scientific fact and acumen behind these ideas. Um, There's loads and loads of experts that fall into that category. When you really, really pin them down, they squirm. They don't really have the nuts and bolts. They just have general ideas. And admittedly, the general ideas are pretty well understood. Um, weight training is, you know, what, 200 years old at this point. So it's it's not a new concept, and loads of people know the kind of general dogma. But to really understand the under-the-hood stuff is how you fine-tune it into a true science. And the person I have on tap for you today is that guy. This is the guy. As soon as I first heard him speak, I realized that's the guy. I want that guy. That guy knows. And let me tell you, this guy knows. The guest today is going to be Dr. Mike Isretel. Uh, he is an exercise scientist. He is a PhD. He is incredibly sharp. He knows this stuff for real. Um, I'm not the world's foremost expert, but I can challenge someone on details. I can coax them to bring out the fine detail. And this guy had zero problem accommodating. Uh, As a matter of fact, he went well beyond my ability to challenge him and brought, you know, brought that forward fact and figure well beyond my acumen. So I am truly impressed. I truly believe in everything he says. And I'm really, really excited to bring this to you. And uh, I I don't want to draw this uh, introduction on much further, but I do want to point this out because I find this very interesting and, and kind of exciting. Um, this call, when, when, he, when he called in to do this interview, um, was actually during uh, kind of his work break. And the beginning of the call was his walk from his uh, uh, university to the local gym. And the entire interview you're about to hear takes place while Dr. Mike is engaged in his hour of quote, cardio. Um, He's literally on a treadmill. So not only is he capable of deep multitasking, um, he's literally, true to the word, literally practicing what he preaches. And by virtue of being in a gym and on a treadmill, 
He doesn't have a lot of reference material in front of him, I'm sure. Probably just about none. Uh, as a matter of fact, he probably has a, a, a mountain of distraction in front of him. So this information literally is just there. This is just what this guy knows on the top of his head, tip of his tongue, heat of the moment. This is the real deal, folks. So with, with nothing more, we're going to take a real quick break, a couple of commercials, a couple of spots. When we come back, interview with Ph.D. Dr. Mike Isratel on the subject of hypertrophy, muscular hypertrophy for sports performance. Evil Genius Sports Performance is now accepting a limited number of new clients. If you would like a consult, please email via the Team Evil GSP website. Hey, shut up and listen. All right, listeners, this is going to be exciting. As promised, the upcoming guest is an absolute Internet sensation at the moment. He's everywhere talking about everything and all of it good. Folks, I really am excited to introduce to you Dr. Mike Isratel. Dr. Mike, are you there? Yeah, sure am. Thanks for having me. Oh, you have no idea. This is absolutely my and my listeners' pleasure. I am very excited for you to come on here and talk to us about all things hypertrophy. Wow, I'll certainly try not to disappoint. You know, it's funny that you describe me as an Internet sensation. I kind of feel like... Uh... Paris Hilton at the moment when, you, when that description is levied, you know. No, no, <laughs> it's true. You, you, you can't put a you can't put a, a strength training search word in without getting some some <laughs> uh, some reference to Dr. Mike. So <laughs> Yahoo <laughs> for for the for what that's worth with the value for of the internet. Worth. Very little, yeah. Uh, um, really, with as little um, input or guidance from me, just. Just hit us with, with hypertrophy. What is it? Why do we need it? How do we get it? Are there different kinds for different sports? Just let loose a torrent of hypertrophy. Sure. You know, hypertrophy is totally overrated. I hate it. I'm actually on my way down. I weigh 110 pounds now, and I want to weigh 90 pounds because I just don't want there to be a me anymore. You know, I take up too much space. I'm really in a bad spot. I hate myself. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we'll see how many people fell for that one. But uh, self-loathing okay, so. <laughs> is rampant. Yes, but the opposite of self-loathing is self-love, and if you love yourself, the really only logical conclusion is you're going to try to build yourself to be as much of yourself as possible, which is what hypertrophy is. But in all seriousness, so I thought it was going to be internet means, porn, but okay. Oh well, you know there are multiple paths to nirvana. So, uh, <laughs> so hypertrophy is the the, the growth of any tissue, so when we say hypertrophy is exercise and sports scientists, we immediately, so the implication is muscular hypertrophy, and the muscle in question is skeletal muscle, and most of the time we don't mean the muscles of, you know, chewing your food, but the muscles of producing movements that are valuable to sport. Sure, cardiac hypertrophy, not great. Uh, we mean, you know, muscles producing movement relevant to sport, or move muscles that are grow relevant to aesthetic pursuits. In producing a hypertrophy for sport purposes, we want that hypertrophy to lay the mechanical basis for generating force, which can then be parlayed into generating power uh, in the sports in which force and power are important, and in almost all sports they are important. So that's the purpose of hypertrophy in sport, is very rarely to just get bigger, because you can do that with fat additions very easily. For example, in sumo, ballast itself, 
is a great component of the sport. So you don't see the guys ripped to shreds, but you do see them very fat. They have lots of muscle too, but the fat serves a good purpose on its own. For sport, the purpose of hypertrophy is to literally build the machine that allows for force production to occur and for that force production to eventually be parlayed into power production, which is force times velocity. That's the benefit of hypertrophy for sport applications, and we could talk extensively about any particular sports that you'd like to steer this direction into. In addition to that, hypertrophy can be done for aesthetic goals. Some people like to look a certain way, and muscles can be a cool look. And, you know, for myself personally, I'm a really shitty competitive bodybuilder, but I'm trying to get better, I keep saying. Uh, and uh, for now, you know, the goal is to expand muscular size while diminishing body fat in a sequential fashion so as to look more jacked. And uh, that involves similar ways of training and eating, but there are some important distinctions that apply when your goals are aesthetic versus when they are just uh, purely sport and performance related. And those differences would be more like the muscular systems and maintaining neurological efficiency and that sort of thing? Totally. So, for example, uh, you'd have to first understand, so the, it comes back to the principle of specificity. Uh, what are you training for? So if you are training to, for example, be an amazing overhead presser and strongman, your calves may not be nearly overhead pressing as, for your example, are your front delts and triceps. So when you design a hypertrophy plan with aims to hit the beach later and have awesome calves so the ladies and the boys will go wild for you, that's going to be a different muscle group targeted than if you want to be a really good overhead presser. Um, believe it or not, this very simple – oops, sorry about that car horn. I'm in the, by the way, I'm in the streets of Philadelphia right now, adds a little edginess to the podcast, you know, like I'm out here doing, doing real shit, and by that I mean walking to the gym to do cardio. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so, you know – this very simple specificity principle is, is often violated. For example, I've consulted and been around many football programs. I was myself a football strength and conditioning coach for a while. And in football programs, sometimes, you know, the coaches catch wind of the fact that hypertrophy is good or they hang out with some bodybuilder friends of theirs or something to that effect. And they'll do for a two- or three-month training block for their football players. With they, they, they don't call it a hypertrophy training block, but they'll say, you know, we're doing bodybuilding work. And they'll literally have their players do bicep curls and lateral raises and calf raises, and I have no idea why. That's not functional hypertrophy in the sense that those muscles being trained aren't the most correlated or the most causative of enhanced football performance. So when you want to get good at football, you have to make an analysis probably for each position if you want to go that far to say what is going to make our players really good at football, right? What muscles are involved in producing what forces in what directions with what power outputs that we really need to grow those muscles to set them up for being stronger and faster later. And the answer for a lot of positions, for example, in the line in football, is you want to make sure that your quadriceps, your glutes, your hamstrings, your chest, shoulders, and triceps are abysmally strong and abysmally big, right? You want to hypertrophy them so that you can push people around better. Those are very awesome pushing muscles, right? And, of course, there's some pulling involved as well. You want to train those. But, you know, lateral delts and calves and maybe biceps or forearms, not exactly the highest priority. So while in bodybuilding we train what we want to look good, in sport we have to make an analysis of what determines actual movement abilities. And, and sometimes that analysis is really difficult to do and it's not very straightforward. It's been researched for maybe three decades now extensively as to what muscles 
produce most of the limiting forces in straight-line sprinting ability. That debate is still not resolved to anyone's satisfaction, and it's by no means clear if the focus should be more on vertical force production, like squatting, or Charlie Francis is rolling in his grave right now. (laughs) Sure. A lot of these guys are rolling in their graves, unfortunately. But, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those situations where, you know, I, I for a while was in the camp and I was pretty convinced that vertical forces were limiting in sprinting and thus should be, we should train them the most with, you know, very heavy squats. I still haven't gotten away from that. I think it's a big component. But there, recently there's been an accumulation of literature that shows that horizontal force is very important as well. So, you know, something like, uh, you know, uh, lunges or hip ups or whatever, or what are those called? Glute bridges. Uh, they may very well also contribute significantly to enhanced performance and may not be something we step away from. When we look back, actually, this very much relates to hypertrophy. When you look at really, really good sprinters, you just take sprinters and compare them to any other athletic group, their quads are pretty big, but that's not what stands out the most. Which muscle on sprinters, two muscles, Roderick, I'll actually ask you, two muscles stand out on sprinters as being the most jacked in disproportionate amounts to other athletes. What are they? Glutes and hamstrings. That's it, right? So when you think about, okay, does squatting benefit the glutes? Yes, but do lunges benefit the glutes and hamstrings more? Yeah, hell yeah. Stiff like a deadlift? Oh my god. So you gotta start to think, man, if you don't, if, if, if vertical forces really are as imposing as we're saying, now they're definitely imposing, but if they're just completely dominant, horizontal force doesn't matter at all, why the hell do sprinters have such big glutes? And, and maybe if sprinters have big glutes, that's already an indication that maybe we should have bigger glutes and bigger hamstrings if we want them to run even faster. That is not immediately apparent. It's not immediately true just from that kind of logic, but there is uh, certainly something to say for that. So an- another great way of looking at what musculature is important for sport, or at least getting hints before doing an in-depth biomechanical analysis, is to look at athletes and say, where are they jacked, right, and where are they not jacked? And you can immediately start ruling some things out. For example... Do sprinters have big calves? No. Are big calves needed for sprinting? You may make that argument, but it would be a very uphill argument. Yet because if it was the, the case... all through the 70s and early 80s, American sprinters were doing calf raises like jackrabbits. And right. no reason for it. Right. And they might, may have actually changed tendon ultrastructure for the worse. And Absolutely. reduced the increased tendon pliability, which reduces the force you get back out of the tendon, which may actually make you slower. Well, actually, Charlie Francis even argued that it was even worse than that. He said, why would you want to put an ankle weight on to run a race? He said, calves are just weight at the end of your legs. Stop making them bigger. I mean, that that is actually, that's that's a one-shot win debate that's impossible to beat. That's completely true. The only question on top of that is, well, everything weighs you down. Maybe it produces more force than it weighs you down. But then the onus is on people to say, how does the calf produce force? Does it produce force rapidly enough in a sprint to actually make a difference? And the answer is probably not. So the calves are at best kind of like springs in a sprint. Then the more tendon you have and thus the less gastroc musculature you have, the actually better you can use that spring, which is why some of the folks that are most genetically gifted for sprinting, uh, such as West Africans, they have barely any calves at all. They have a gigantic yep. tendon and a tiny little gastroc. It actually yep. hurts them in bodybuilding. It's the only muscle they have a problem with in bodybuilding. And yep. it, it makes immediate sense when you do a biomechanical analysis. But if you were just like linearly thought, okay, muscles of the legs need to get bigger, you could make some mistakes. It's a good starting point, but we have to get in more in-depth uh, for sure. Outstanding. I, uh, I, I, hope, I hope the listeners are following along. It, it seems like a divergence from just speaking about pure raw hypertrophy, but deciding what to make bigger is very, very relevant to everything. 
Yeah. So, you know, anytime we have the, the claim that, okay, hypertrophy is good, hypertrophy is muscle growth, and muscle growth produces forces and powers, which is necessary for athletic performance, that is an absolutely valid claim, but what we have to follow that up with is more specificity, right? We've got to get into the specifics of, okay, exactly which muscles do we want to grow? Another issue with hypertrophy, and this is something that I can ramble on for quite a bit, so feel free to stop me or interject with questions, is, is the following. Hypertrophy by itself, the training for hypertrophy, is usually optimized in relatively light weight compared to what optimizes force production, something between the 60 and 75% range of a 1RM. So something between 60 and 75% 1RM is probably best for, hyper, for hypertrophic outcomes. I can explain later why that's the case. And, you know, that's not the same thing as the best loading for strength outcomes, which tends to be heavier. It tends to be probably between 70 and 85% for most training of 1RM. So you get in a situation where you have to have an understanding of phasic structure to actually have hypertrophy help you. When you train for relatively higher repetitions and higher volumes of training, you add fatigue. You actually teach the nervous system to be better at repetitions and not as good as explosive efforts. So if you do a month of hypertrophy training, expending your sprints or your jumps or your weightlifting movements to go up, you may very well find that they actually go down if you are sufficiently high level enough. And, and that if could also be fairly heavily influenced by, uh, by, by, by protein myosin isoforms, yes? Absolutely. So it goes all the way from isoforms all the way up through the nervous system, all the way through learning movement patterns. So when you are doing hypertrophy training, you are coding for the wrong kind of isoform. There is a whole lot of other cellular activity goes on to make you better at that. So you're left with this it, it, architect, it's almost, I would say the analogy is like building a skyscraper in a really busy uh, section of downtown, but all the cranes and shit like that and all the scaffolding fuck everything else up in the short term. What you have to do is get rid of the cranes and the scaffolding, put up signs to tell the workers where to go, and sooner or later restaurants open up, uh, little walkways are created to get better to the skyscraper from other buildings in the area, and the productivity of downtown now actually goes up. But that transition takes time. It's not immediate. It sure as hell isn't when you're building a skyscraper. A lot of people do the analogical equivalent of stopping building the skyscraper when it's halfway done because it di- disrupted the productivity of their downtown region. So put in more direct weight, they'll say, I, I put on muscle for a month. It didn't make me faster. What you have to do is put on the muscle first. Then, once you have muscle, good news physiologically, maintenance of homeostasis is much easier than accrual of new abilities. So you don't have to keep training for hypertrophy to keep muscle. You can now train it for strength. Lower repetitions, heavier weights, higher forces, lower fatigue because you're doing less work. Now you start to see that the new muscle is being taught how to be explosive, how to be strong, and it's not fatiguing the rest of your training. Now your sprinting goes up. After a month or two of that, you can transition into a power phase where you do lots of cleans, lots of dynamic work, lots of jumps, maybe loaded jumps, as you start doing that, you're teaching this big, strong muscle all the way from a chemical level down to the learning level in the brain, you're teaching it to move quick. And with plyometrics involved in there too, with reactive forces, now you've got a muscle that may be very good at getting it to jump higher or sprint faster or whatever other explosive activities you want out of it. 
Doctor so Mike, if I, could, a, if I could interrupt you there, I want to speak to my listeners. Um, even though we're we're on the phone with an absolute expert in in the subject of hypertrophy, everything that man just said explains away everything that the West Side imbeciles would tell you. <laughs> just, oh boy. just just as a side note to that, so that I don't have to go on that particular tirade <laughs> one more time. Yeah, well, you know, I think you and I, between the two of us, have been on that tirade one too many times. Yeah, but. Uh, <laughs> So the transitional element in sport is something that's not really debated by scientists anymore. Um, it's been common practice since the, the 70s, probably more like the early 80s. There are entire books written on the Soviet literature. There are books written on the American literature. And, you know, to be frank, the idea that you can simultaneously get adaptations and become optimally adapted to expressing them is uh, it works on sub-elite athletes pretty well. Because if you're really not muscular... You can grow muscle so fast that the sheer addition of muscle adds so much immediate force production that you get more powerful. <laughs> but that's not something you can rely on for a long time. And a lot of the literature describes them how to make really good athletes better, right? That's the real kicker, and that's the difference. <laughs> so, so, and that requires transitional work. Now, kind of in Louis' defense, or in West Side's defense, uh, to put it this way, they didn't really do much hypertrophy work. <laughs> they would do high force and high velocity movements so they could see faster transfers. Is that the best way to go about it? I don't think it is. But they certainly didn't have much of a transfer problem because, you know, they weren't putting in the foundational building blocks as much, to put it that way. I, I agree entirely. Um, yeah, it's just the, the, the endless polishing of an unpainted car just doesn't seem like a sensible approach to me. Sure. Uh, agree. <laughs> um, okay, on to specifically the subject of hypertrophy. Let's say... I am a competitive powerlifter, and essentially my relevant issues are squat, bench, and deadlift. What am I going to do to hypertrophy the major muscles or muscle systems or however you think of the machinery in those relevant points? How do I hypertrophy those things to, for, for say, let's say 12 or 16 weeks, and then begin to transition that into a bigger total on the platform? Sure. Yeah. So, uh some some very good discussion here. If you'd like, I can later touch on choosing which muscles to hypertrophy, but let's just say that right now all of them are good, right? Well, so well, let, me, let, me, let me ask you a question that I, I get asked re relatively regularly by my listeners. Do you think of it as, quote, muscles, or do you think of it as muscular systems? I, I personally came up in a school where if you're talking about functional athletics, you're talking about systems. The pecs don't do anything alone. They do it in concert with the shoulders and triceps, yeah. and so on. Well, I have an answer. <laughs> Please. Uh, and, and I only want your answers. The, my listeners are well, well aware of my feelings. This is, this is Dr. Mike. Sick, sick and tired of your bullshit, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. I, people who listen to my podcast are sick and tired of my bullshit, too. But, <laughs> okay, so anyway, uh, so I actually do have an answer in this regard, and I just have to address this issue somewhere else. When you're training for powerlifting in a three-phase system, of hypertrophy, strength, and peaking. There are three different kinds of training you're going to be doing. Hypertrophy training puts on muscle size. Strength training allows you to strengthen that muscle in the movements that are required. And lastly, peaking allows you to express with a high level of technique at specifically heavy loads that new strength that you have. Because general strength is great. Zadruna Savitska, if you had him, you know, champion strongman, if you had him do a competition bench, 
may not have benched for a while. His pecs are enormous. His shoulders and triceps are maybe the biggest in the world. He's got the strength. He's got the strength. But he needs the technique at those heavy loads. A couple of practice sessions later, maybe a month or two, he benched 50 kilos more than usual, right? Or 25 kilos more than usual because of that relearning ability. So that being as it is, I think it's important to focus on the muscles. I'll make a qualifier for that in a second. For hypertrophy phase, focus on the muscles, not the movement. Okay. For strength phase, focus on the movement, not the muscles. For the PK phase, focus on the destruction of entire cities, on the explosions of entire planets, on intergalactic war, on whatever the fuck gets you pumped up to make big lifts. Because you can't think about technique when you're actively expressing it under monster loads. It's already got to be ingrained. You don't tell sprinters to think about sprinting when they're sprinting. What do you say to a sprinter before he goes on track? Fuck shit up. Do your best. You don't give any technique cues. Shit's too late for that. In a strength training phase, you think about the technique. You think about the gross movement. If you're thinking about your pecs, when you're benching 450 for sets of five, you're an idiot. You're not doing the wrong thing. You've got to think about pushing the bar in exactly the line that, that matters, in exactly the best path, and keeping everything tight and in great position. It's positions and muscle systems that matter. When you're training for hypertrophy, you're picking which muscle to train. Thus, if you wide grip bench, but somehow you take a weird position, you don't feel it in your chest at all, you don't get any chest hypertrophy from that, and chest is your limiting factor in the bench. When you come back to regular benching and you do strength, you will see very little strength carryover because you didn't actually make your pecs bigger. The mind-muscle connection, to a small extent, does actually determine which muscles get bigger. However, it's a super important to say it cannot come at the expense of load, cannot come at the expense of intensity, and it can't come at the expense of really good technique. So, in powerlifting, to build big quads, for example, or big pecs, which exercises work the best? The compound heavy basics. You're going to fucking leg extend your weight to bigger quads and powerlifting. That's fucking ridiculous. You want to high bar squat. You want a front squat. You want to do heavy leg presses. For a chest, you want to do wide grip benching. You want to do wide grip dumbbell work. You want to do some flies maybe. When you're doing those exercises, you should feel the muscles involved. But your goal shouldn't be necessarily to feel the muscles. That should be not a goal but a checklist. The goal should be, I need X number of reps with X number of weight with this kind of great technique. The technique the is what... That's right. The technique and the progression. The technique is what should determine how much you involve your chest or your quads. For example, if you high bar squat cantilever style, I'm sure you've seen this before, sure. where you've got a high bar position and your ass shoots up and then you fucking good morning it, that's nice. You're not really using your quads much. Much better is to make sure your high bar squat technique is good you start getting sets of 10 or sets of 8 with a high bar squat, there is no choice but for your quads to be involved. Now, if your quads aren't involved, you really don't feel them, it makes a little bit of sense, not a lot, a little to lower the weight maybe, or to focus more on the movement, so that you can feel the muscles that you need to be bigger working. But for most, unless it's a really muscle that holds you back, for most powerlifting hypertrophy work, your statement of think of it as muscle is absolutely correct. I would just say it's very, very correct for strength work, and, and very correct for hypertrophy work, but there is something to say to make sure you're getting some individual muscles a better workout if they are your target. Very good. I understand. Mm -hmm. And and I could certainly accept that. Um, how about exercise arrangement? How much, like, like even, dare I even speak hideous bodybuilding speak and say something like a pre-exhaustion type arrangement. Is that relevant? Not relevant? Detrimental? Not detrimental? Or irrelevant? So far before... 
I ever would go. So, so, so we can actually just do a very good analysis. Pre-exhaust allows you to specifically target a particular muscle. The trade-off is that you can't use as much weight. The stimulus won't be as great in exactly what you want the stimulus to be greater or power. So that's a problem. But it's a tool which we can eventually use, but it has to pass a couple of filters first. The first question anyone ever asks, if they say, hey, pre-exhaust good for powerlifting, the first question I ask them is the following. Let me see your technique on the compound movement that you're doing, okay? Because if their technique really sucks, I could say, look, if you just fix your technique, you would totally hit your quads on a squat. You wouldn't even have to worry about it, right? The next thing, let's say their technique is good on their low bar squat or even their high bars. What is the next thing I'm going to focus on? I'm going to try to give them still compound, awesome, big, heavy exercises that are not isolation movements so much so, but more isolation on one body part. So before I let you do leg extension or even leg presses, I'd like to see you front squat or narrow stance, feet pointing forward, high bar squat, something like that. That usually hits the quads great, but it's still compound in nature. It's a great way to give overload. If all that fails, and if your quads are very much the limiting factor as opposed to just general leg pushing strength, maybe in some way what we'd want to do is involve pre-exhaust. But pre-exhaust can still happen with more compound movements than, than isolation, and there's an intelligent way to do it. Here it is. I think this works for bodybuilders and powerlifters like, by the way. Pre-exhaust. Here's what you do. You don't do the pre-exhausting isolation movement first. You actually do it second, which I like to call the sandwich technique. So here's a, let's say a powerlifter comes to us, his quads are not sufficiently developed. They're really a problem for him. No problem. Four sets of ten high bar squats to start, okay? Then he said, okay, well, like, it's great. I, these are really heavy. They're great for overall size, but I still don't feel like quads much. No problem. After those squats, then the next exercise would be leg press. Done in such a way with feet low on the platform, close together, that fucks up the quads big time. Now, Roderick, you can probably follow logic here. We've checked off the list of compound heavy movement to start. We're not missing out on that anymore. Now we're doing the leg press second. We just say, hold on, there's no pre-exhaust. Uh-uh-uh. Four sets of ten leg press. Then you go to front squats or, again, do high bar squats. Now you're hitting the quads, which are so fucked. They are now the limiting factor. They get the biggest hit. They get the most metabolic damage. And now they're the ones paying the price. and They're the ones being put forward as the biggest muscles to be stimulated. So by doing a compound movement, then more isolation movement, then a compound movement again, we get the benefit of doing compounds first and the benefit of doing isolation with a pre-exhaust style. So that would really be, in my, my series of choices when I mentioned pre-exhaust, that would really be more about just arrangement of exercises. Um, Absolutely. Kind of Absolutely. Using, using arrangement of exercises to give you a perceived pre-exhaustion of the quads versus glutes, hamstrings, and low back, which I Absolutely. completely get on board with. And I actually prescribe something very similar, only I tend to prefer the hack squat machine over... Oh, I mean, listen, hack squat is amazing. And I, the only reason I say it is because I just wanted to keep the example limited. I use a yeah. hack squat all the time. It's great. Properly done. Feet close. Close on the platform, in full range of motion, will tear your quad like 80 yeah. assholes in one. I time. tend to find, uh, and, and I personally am ridiculously guilty of this, just the way my fiber type and, and lever length and what have you is arranged, um, my glutes and quads can recover infinitely faster than my low back. Yeah. So I can hack squat many, many more times a week than I can higher low bar squat just because squatting and deadlifting destroys my low back. Interesting. 
Yeah, most people seem to have a pretty quick recovery of the low back, but I, I'm not that guy. I'm just, and I, it's taken me an entire career to really identify that as the problem. Interesting. You know, it's funny. My lower back recovers fine between sessions, but within the session, it's really stuck. So, like, a lot of high rep squats later, and my lower back is going to be, like, the limiting factor before my quad. Well, to uh, me, that's, so, uh, purely, that's, that's purely predicated on androgen dosing. If I, the, higher, <laughs> the higher my androgens go, the more my back fucking pumps up, but geez, that's yeah. probably not relevant to the conversation at Well, you know, I'll make the addendum that if you let the androgen dosing bloat you up, that's absolutely the case, but if you somehow mitigate the bloat, you'll be fine even with high androgens. Yeah. Yeah, I that's one hell of a bloat to fight. <laughs> I, no, I absolutely agree with you, but I, yeah. I'm also one of those guys that... Uh, What's, what's the wording I want to use? I'm not a big fan of taking a drug to fix a drug. I tend to just, like, let something do its thing. Sure. That's generally a good idea. You end up yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a minimalist on almost all points. Um, I, I, love, I love the concepts you put forward. Um, I'm absolutely on board. I actually tend to try and find more differences between myself and the guest, but in your case, there's really fewer of them than than I typically find. Well, shit, let's find some, man. This is getting boring, So, right? so we, we, we've got this concept of identifying what it is you need to hypertrophy, kind of what, what, what um, psychology to use in terms of identifying the types and kinds of exercises. Yep. Now let's get to the meat and potatoes. What kind of frequency, what kind of load, what kind of volume, and need it... Need it um, is it dynamic over time, or is it relatively, this is the prescription, fucking go do it? Yeah. So, you know, in powerlifting, it's been shown relatively robustly now that fiber type of the musculature determines force production per cross-sectional area. We used to think this was the case, but more particular studies have found consistently it is the case. So what that means is faster twitch muscle fiber, even of the same size, produce more peak force than slower twitch muscle fibers, even on the same side. Dr. Fred Hatfield was preaching that in the 80s. I don't know why it took so long to catch on. So, so was Doc Stone, and <laughs> only, only now have the studies accumulated to convince most other people. So here's the deal. What are the implications of that? It means that it's probably likely that there is a differential hypertrophy with training type, particularly rep range and weight. While it may be true that slow twitch muscle fibers grow just about the same from high reps and low reps. Fast twitch muscle fibers may not grow as well from low reps as they do, I'm sorry, may, may not grow as well from super high reps as they do from low reps. So fast twitch muscle fibers, especially the more fast twitch you get, the more extreme this becomes, respond best in hypertrophy to low repetitions, right? So if we want our fast twitch muscle fibers to be the ones that hypertrophy the most because we want the most strength per unit size. Per bigger muscle, we want the most strength. Probably want to train in such a way that really does bias us into the direction of fast twitch fiber, which means two implications. One big implication, one smaller implication for hypertrophy training for power lift. First implication, probably should stick to the lower rep range. I'll say what range in just a second, but it's lower than typical. Secondly, we probably want to focus at least conserving some movement velocity because it's been shown fast twitch muscle fibers hypertrophy under high loads and high velocities. So when you're doing your benching on hypertrophy phase, it shouldn't all be about the feel. It can be slow on the way down, but on the way up, you want to put some oomph into it. Yeah, even in your setup 10 of squats, on the way up, you might want to move fast because that may contribute 
more to fast twitch hypertrophy. That's a small point, but for sure the weight needs to be heavier. Ironically, I, I, I coach people that same that same thing, but not necessarily for the physiological reason of, you know, protein isoform and permanence of fiber type and all that. I simply coach people on that is because you you have a finite amount of time to practice this shit. Go fast. That's what you got to do in contest. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, but totally. It's really good 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 use of that. So yeah. um the concern is with how much weight to use. So we already know that we have one biasing direction, and that the heavier the better. Okay, fine. So the heavier uh, um, um, an exercise is, the more fast switch hypertrophy we tend to get, and actually the more per volume hypertrophy we get anyway. There's a counterbalance to that. It's very clear that the higher the intensity that you use, that means the more weight on the bar there is, the higher percent of 1RM, the more fatigue is caused per unit of volume. And it's probably a hyperbolic relationship which means that if you use really, really high intensities, let's say you're trying to do singles, 95% of your 1RM, for all of your volume. <laughs> what is the amount of volume with singles that's going to be the most you can recover from week to week, your max recovery volume? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Broderick, what do you think? Ten singles? I was going to say five someone do six, more than that? Yeah. <laughs> right. It depends on how strong you are, but certainly for the average strength powerlifter, anything more than ten, I would be really shocked, you know? Not so to that's, mention it just be emotionally and neurologically just daunting. I mean, recovery in every way, right? Oh, totally, it's totally daunting, right? Absolutely. So, and if you survived it, it would be daunting the next week because of how much fatigue you have. So, not a good idea to train with super, super heavy loads because they don't let you put in enough work because they demand too much of your recovery. But we know that if we lighten the loads too much, it's too slow twitch, it's not specific enough, and even lighter then 60% 1RM starts to not affect hypertrophy the same way it's not as good for muscle growth. So I think a good middle ground for most people, not all, for powerlifting hypertrophy, something in the 6 to 10 rep range, right? If it's heavier than 6 reps, then it's probably so heavy that you could just be doing more volume and get more growth. But if it's lighter than 10 reps, you're probably not maximizing the fiber type of output. And there's one more concern I have to mention. It's the transition of phases. Let's say fiber type didn't exist. Muscle was muscle. The more volume you put in above 60% 1RM, the more you grew. Fine. We would do all our growth at 60% 1RM, sets of 20 or 15. What happens when you enter a strength phase and you have to do sets of fives or threes? How the hell, you, I'm sure you've been here before just by accident training stupid, as I have. Getting used to squats, sets of five, after you've been doing squats, sets of 15, the bar weight, steel, is completely different. And you spend a month just relearning how to squat on loads that heavy. Absolutely. It's a transition problem. <laughs> People that have not done it do not grasp the concept that the, the neurological recruitment of doing a set of 10 and a set of 2 are almost entirely very different. different. Very different. And, and, and so, that is a very hard thing to explain to someone that hasn't experienced it. You bet. And so, so, so we get to this kind of little conundrum, but we solve it by saying, look, if we do between 6 and 10 reps, we have this great, great hypertrophic stimulus. And when it comes time to transition to sets of fives or whatever, look, if you've been doing sets of 15, sets of fives are a shock that takes month, a month to get used to. If you've been doing sets of eight, sets of five are like a week later, you're like, oh, it's me. You know what I mean? So it's more sports-specific, and it allows you to capitalize on strength training better without pissing away too much time relearning shit you should have never forgotten about. Do you personally or, or, or scientifically put any stock in the idea that your innate 
genetically predisposed fiber type might have an impact on your butter zone of hypertrophy? Uh, I have time for that argument. Uh, no, no, just, just, you don't necessarily need to delve, but I mean, do you do you feel that that's relevant? Um, I, I have also was a big fan of Arthur Jones of Nautilus fame, and I'm well aware, and I think even he would be in this day and age, that okay. a lot of what he said was wrong, but he was also operating in the Stone Ages, and most of his material was guesses. Sure. Um, you know, and, and but I have a huge amount of respect for the thinking the man did. He thought about subjects that other people didn't even know were subjects. Uh, agreed. Agreed. So, you know... If you are, if it is in fact true that high loads help more with fast switch hypertrophy versus low loads, it's likely true. And if it is in fact true that different people have different percentage of fiber types, some are more fast switch than others, which is likely true, then yes, people who tend to be more fast switch will benefit from working with lower loads more. Finding that on the real world may be a little bit difficult. Uh, maybe not as Absolutely agree. Short but a biopsy. But I think that it, yeah, but I think it's worth a try. So if someone and this is a way I think you have to use a consilience of evidence. Evidence from multiple grounds. For example, uh if you say, okay, this guy, his ten rep max is four oh five, but his one rep max is six oh five. Like he just sucks total dick at reps. He's amazing at heavy lifting. That indicates fast switch fiber type. It, it may, it may. But you can't just use that one criteria. So how about this? This guy... Could be neurological inefficiency, too. Totally. This guy's a former top collegiate thrower. He's been explosive his whole life. He's standing broad jump as nuts for no reason. He's an unbelievably hard puncher. Every, he's a super athletic, super quick. He tires out on everything, even though he's in great cardiovascular shape. And he stocks at rest. You're gonna, probably a fast switch guy, right? And then it probably behooves you to at least your first guess to start training him in the lower effort ranges. And then you can use ecological measurements. Hey, how are these workouts affecting you? A lot of times, super fast switch individuals, and this is really, really weird, from high reps, they just feel like it's fatiguing, and nothing happens. It's a burnout. Like, if I asked you to run a mile, you were relatively in shape for running. You wouldn't get sore. You'd just get tired. You'd be like, this sucks. You'd be like, do you have a pump? You'd be like, no. It blows. But if I got you in that hypertrophy range, you get a huge pump, and you get super sore. You get dumps. I notice the people who have a history of fast switch performance that I've trained, they get sore from lower reps than everyone else. I think that's a pretty good indicator that those reps are homeostatically disruptive and probably indicate that you're getting more out of them. That's interesting. So, I'm, I'm so, using myself as the, as the thought here, and I literally cannot generate muscular soreness with less than five repetitions, regardless of the load. Yeah, and uh, that, that works for a lot of people. Some super fast switch freaks I've met, get sore for days and days and days doing triples. I don't know how that works. But these were also people that ran unbelievable 40 times in football in high school. Super, super explosive individuals. So, uh, you know, there's... Just, just, to quantify, just to quantify, you you happen to be speaking. I should be in Guinness Book. I happen to be the least athletic human on, on the planet. Yeah, right. No, yeah, I right. literally am. Me. You've never met me. You no, I dwarf you. In, 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 patheticness, <laughs> in, in athletic ineptitude, I dwarf you. Unbelievable. That's quite a claim, sir. I, take, I, I don't take kind of that. <laughs> so, so in any case, one really quick example to that, just an illustration. There's a bodybuilder a couple years back who was very good, and uh, he 
was a former high-level sprinter, like nationally ranked. And they asked him, you know, do you agree with the idea for yourself that legs respond better to high reps? Because there's this thought in bodybuilding, like sets of 15 and 20 is good for legs, and not like sets of 8 and 10 for upper body. So, which actually correlates, by the way, to fiber type analysis. Most upper body musculature is more fast twitch than lower body. So, interestingly enough, that it does correlate. But he said no. And in his case, only the compound basics. He didn't do leg extensions or anything. Only the compound basics, squats and leg presses. I think he might have done hack squats as well. But he really just said he mostly does squats and leg presses. In the six to eight rep range, he said those make him sore. They fuck him up. They make his squats huge. But he said he's tried training in the 15 to 20 rep range, and nothing happens. He says he gets tired, and then nothing happens. Certainly believable. Interesting, but certainly believable. Sure. And so should we really run away with that idea? I think it's premature. But if people tend to respond better to lower reps, we should probably keep them in. And that's an easy thing for them because they transition really well into power work, which rewards fast with people anyway. So once you have that hypertrophy in place, then you go on to strength phase. But some other tidbits here. So the loading, 6 to 10 reps. What you want to do is find out how many total sets per week you can do and your performance doesn't drop off from fatigue, and train around that figure. So you start a little bit under that figure at the beginning of a method cycle. For several weeks, you increase both your set numbers and the weight on the bar gradually and by slowly. And then you delook after you exceed that value temporarily for overreaching. So let's say, on average, 15 sets a week of lower body, like pushing work, you know, squats, leg presses. After, if you consistently train with more than 15, you just get weaker. You get so tired and beat up, you can't do it. But if you consistently train with 10, you can just train like that all the time. You don't tend to grow much speed. So what you would do is probably start maybe around 10 or 12 in week one. And as you go from week one, two, three, four, you go to maybe 16 or 18 total sets for functional overreaching, take a deload, and then start again. That allows you to make sure your training is sufficiently overloading, but not too overloading and thus too fatiguing for you to benefit. And, 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 and at what frequency would you prescribe? So yeah, so the frequency... Two to four times a week for most people uh, is usually the recommendation. And the addendum to that is if you tend to be a larger individual, then usually you're stronger. And stronger individuals with bigger muscles, literally, you'll like this as a biologist, you disrupt homeostasis more because there's physically more tissue to disrupt. And the ratio between your muscularity and all of the immune system abilities and the uh, organs that support recovery starts to go, uh, you know, go down into the negative, right? So for That's example, something, I, I'm so glad to hear you say that. I have mentioned that over and over. As a biologist, thinking in biological terms, you have the same infrastructure, your, your liver, your, your renal system, all the, all the yep. infrastructure that makes biology work does not hypertrophy. So you've got yep. the same size machinery running an ever-increasing body. Yep. Very simple which, logic. Which is very, eventually, if you get big enough, it's going to slow your recovery. So Absolutely. for people that are very large and muscular, they may even only train hard once a week for each muscle group and an easier session uh, in the next middle of the week. For those that are less gigantic and less strong, two hard sessions. And for everyone else, as you go down the line of people who are less strong and less gigantic incrementally, then what you do is you reduce those uh, or increase those frequencies. So I think that squatting four times a week, maybe using two different variants to keep it fresh, 
to high bar squatting sessions to front squatting sessions is absolutely great for folks that weigh 130, 140, 150 pounds, especially that are new to the sport, aren't strong enough yet to really fuck shit up. I think for them, four days of squatting a week is great. It also allows them a lot of technical practice in the squat to get better. Because if you're squatting once a week, you're not really going to get better at squatting nearly as fast as you could have to get a lot of the exercise because you're not spending a lot of time practicing squat. Uh, absolutely. Neurological efficiency is everything in actually executing a thing. He who hits yeah. the most baseballs probably hits the best baseball. Yeah, you bet. There's a lot to that. fucking simple. Yeah, you bet. So, so there yeah, it is. When, you know, when you laid out that volume, you said, okay, so uh, Joe Average is probably 15 sets, and then you're talking about three sessions a week. You're talking about five sets per session. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I just wanted to clarify for sets. listeners. I was pretty confident that's what you meant. Your yep. your set volume is a weekly total. You're capable of 20 total weekly sets. Divide that into a number of frequencies. Absolutely. And sometimes these frequencies make it... So when we look at high-frequency training and we're used to low-frequency training, there's this immediate gut reaction, which is totally understandable, for us to become incredibly skeptical of how the hell high-frequency could possibly be recoverable. Because you, you tend to think, this is my workout. And if I do it four times a week, I'm going to die, <laughs> which is totally understandable if you usually do one workout a week. So let's say you do 15 sets a week, okay, and you do it just once. A 15-set workout is really one hell of a workout to recover from, which is why it probably takes you a week. If you split it up into three sessions, if someone said, hey, listen, do you ever try training three times a week for your legs? You go, are you fucking nuts? You're going to get me killed. That's 45 sets. But then they go, no, 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 no. It's five sets each time. You go, five sets? That's bare low workout. Exactly. So, if you did five sets Monday, Wednesday, Friday, could you recover? Yes, probably, right? And especially if you did it even more and more intelligently, biasing it in one direction to promote what's recovery and adaptation, what you could do is say you could do eight sets on Monday, you could do five sets on Wednesday, and on Friday, you could only do two sets as a more of a recovery day. That biasing, which is similar to DUP, right? It's a form of DUP, actually. It's undulated set number. That allows you to have a fucking awesome day Monday. Put in some good work Wednesday when you're a little bit fucked up. Super recover on Friday so you can have another awesome session Monday, and so on and so forth. That's probably the best approach. I, I very much agree and prescribe something very, very similar to that, actually. Cool, man. Well, stop fucking stealing I, my ideas, man. I'm I, I actually don't titrate the set volume. I titrate the rep range. That's, um, and, that, you know, that accomplishes very largely the same thing. Yeah, it's exactly. I'll, I'll tend to prescribe people f five sets of uh, five, and then the next workout might be five sets of seven, and then the last workout might be yeah. five sets of ten, and, you know, and, and then adjust that way. Or keep the weight static and simply lower the reps. Do five yeah. sets of five, and then the next week do five sets of workout, do five sets of three with the same weight, something yes. like that. Now, can I can I get on a really quick rant? That's uh, Absolutely. very much. You may say whatever <laughs> feels feel compelled to. <laughs> People really, really, really get this. I wouldn't say confused, but people uh, sometimes miss the general concept for the particulars and generate a kind of needless amount of confusion. And if, if anything, I would like my contribution to the field to be anything. It is to be someone who pedantically and annoyingly tries to reinforce the general concepts. Because I think if you don't understand the general concepts or if you're getting them wrong, 
you are very much making a big mistake in trying to think about particulars, right? Yeah. It's like not having an engine in your car and trying to think about what kind of rims you want to put on it. Well, good luck yeah. getting around town. So I'd like to say this. People ask me questions about DUP. And a lot of times, it's not what do I think about DUP as a general approach to training, which I think it's fucking great and it's been done by every knowledgeable sports scientist and coach for 30 years, okay? People ask me, what do you think about a particular DUP program? And they ask me, well, I thought your programming, you said your programming has DUP elements, but I see that your weights don't change over the week. The general concept between undulation or just volume load variation, as we call it, sports science, the general concept is that you are trying to have some sessions that are more homeostatically disruptive than others so that some sessions actively promote overload, actively promote disruption, while other sessions allow more technical practice while promoting recovery. How you arrive, so, so all we're saying is that some sessions are more oomph than others, more overloading, and some are less. That is the entire concept behind undulation. How you arrive there is so much a fucking secondary concern, I spend very little time thinking about it. And I'm a fucking professional sports scientist, right? So, so you know, people say, you know, should I lower my weight on Wednesday to recover, or should I lower my sets, or should I lower my reps? And I say, hey, listen, that you're lowering it already is 90% of the equation. And how you're lowering it, we can get into very technical discussions about, but all of them have a very tiny, tiny relevancy, right? Exactly. So I just, public service announcement, the big power behind DUP is not that you do fives one time and threes another. It is that you do a lot one time and less the other. And a medium amount next session, and then you go back through the cycle. That is the beauty of it. Hitting a muscle and a, on a movement hard, letting it recover and adapt while doing more technique work, and then repeating that process. As opposed to bludgeoning it hard every single time, not allowing for the recovery, and then you run into a much worse accumulated fatigue problem. You know, it's a, something, something kind of wacky just jumped into my mind. It's not exactly relevant here, but it's, it's interesting. I... I, I I'm a, a, a collector of bodybuilding, strength training, strongman uh, uh, books and magazines. I have a vast. Okay. That sounds cool. Um, in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, there was a guy, Leo Costa. He was a, a, a reasonably competent bodybuilder. Um, his big claim to fame was that he went to Eastern Europe and stole their secrets. Oh, boy. And, yeah, like Louis Simmons. I'm just kidding. Well, yeah, but this guy was actually one, the original, and two, I think he actually did go there. I think he was okay. actually he was relevant. Um, he was a contemporary of Fred Hatfield. He was a smart guy, not not a not a fool in any way. Anyway, he produced a uh, a little training program. Um, it went through a number of in, in iterations, but the final one was uh, something called Big Beyond Belief. I'm not doing an advertisement for it, but anyway, he said in very uh, layman's language exactly what you just did and laid out this concept of very, very high-frequency uh, workouts, and he started with, like, taking the Arnold workout, and then he just broke that into, okay, instead of 20 sets of chest on Monday, we're going to do four sets every day, you know, and kind mm -hmm. of, and it was interesting how he deconstructed it almost in a bro-science fashion to come to very similar language that you did. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Now, now, so to, to be very clear, you know, is high frequency for everyone? No. The overload frequency is what we're interested in, and overload frequency needs to be lower for more advanced lifters. And how much of a difference is there between high frequency overload 
versus low-frequency overload. Not a lot. The per-week overload magnitude in terms of volume and weight on the bar, that's what really is the big determinant. Frequency is more like 10% of the equation rather than 90. But it is a, a topic to be talking about, especially if you want to get as good as you can. And if you want to well, get as 10, good as you can, your frequency is probably going to be higher. A lacking 10% consistently for a career makes you yeah. bronze instead of gold. Oh, you bet. And in fact, probably, probably much worse than that if it's a really competitive field. Yeah, that, that's the thing that people don't realize is as, as the stakes escalate, the minuscule becomes ever relevant. You bet. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you had, you had said, like, I have seen some studies, and this is me, not really my listeners, but I've seen some studies that indicate hypertrophy can take place with loads as low as potentially 35% of max. Mm-hmm. Um, are, do you put any stock in those fringe things that have cropped up? You bet. A lot of stock. A, a lot of hypertrophy takes place, uh, probably fueled by metabolite accumulation, so there's a very good reason to believe that a lot of lactate and other metabolites accumulating in musculature actually leads to a hypertrophic response. I will regularly use such forms of training. The cost, the benefit of that you do get hypertrophy. The downside is that that hypertrophy may not necessarily be in the fiber type that you want as much as it is in other fiber types. So it may be more slow twitch fiber hypertrophy. In addition to that, the neural and technical characteristics it promotes are cross currents with powerlifting. So I'm not a strength athlete anymore. Well, I guess jujitsu sort of, but I'm a more of a bodybuilder, so I can use high reps like that. If a, if a bodybuilder, you know, when people talk about bodybuilders having quote unquote non-functional hypertrophy, which is of course bullshit. If the muscle is big, it's strong. But what they're saying is, man, you know, that bodybuilder for as big as he is, isn't as strong as I would expect, but he can do a shitload of reps because he trains like that, right? So if you're a power lifter, it probably is a good idea to train with lower reps and stay away from that high rep training because you want to be more functional. Not We're not saying it's totally non-functional otherwise, right? But we want to make sure we stay in that rep range that really is, um, you know, for lack of a better term, more specific, more fiber specific. So, so, even, more so even though it biologically is a sound practice for raw hypertrophy, yes. it's probably the least relevant to a strength athlete. Absolutely. Okay. And, and I completely accept that, and I, I probably would have – would have pulled that answer out of my hat with a little less uh, technical prowess than you, but I, I probably would have pinned that one. Um, now, I want to ask you a question, and you're certainly welcome to hedge away from it, but I do have a slightly, or perhaps not slightly, more hardcore audience than the rest of the world. So I feel compelled okay. to ask this question on behalf of my listeners. How much does pharmacological influence influence the subject of hypertrophy, in that, obviously, drugs make you grow more. That's stupid. My question mm-hmm. is, does it change the methodology that one might want to employ to explain yeah. to the benefit, to the highest benefit? So I think for bodybuilding, it's very, very little changes. You just get better results. For powerlifting, you can uh, use the hypertrophic abilities of androgens to... Uh, enhance the training process in a predictable way. And this is actually something I talked to Chad Wesley Smith and Max Ada about on Chad's podcast. We didn't get into it a lot, so we can get into it here quite a bit. Here's the deal. You know, if muscle strength, I'm sorry, if muscle size was never a concern for you, any time you spent training muscle size is time you could have spent training strength and stats. Agreed? Absolutely. Like, 
if, if we have a, a car company that doesn't have to manufacture engines anymore, why the fuck would it make engines? Why can't it just concentrate on making a better body with the same amount of money it has anyway? So, and this, this is a conveyor technically defined. You have a certain amount of maximum recoverable volume per week, and you actually have a certain amount of maximum recoverable volume and time per macro cycle to prepare for meat. If you piss away a third of it training for hypertrophy, you could have just trained for strength more. So, difficult to disagree with that. Now, you got this pill or this needle. You know, our best friends, violin needle, they love each other and they love you too. And you can be friends with them if you want to shit out your health. So, they come along and they offer us the following promise. That, hey, look, we can't give you hypertrophy, but we can definitely ease the burden. So, now the sets of fives you're doing may very well hypertrophy. You, as much as a natural lifter, gets out of sets only out of sets of six to ten. So what we can do is take the entire phase potentiated powerlifting training process, shift it over to be heavier. Not only this, so so what that means is now instead of spending a lot of time training eights and tens and losing our neural efficiency at heavy loads, only to get it back later, of course, we never have to lose it to begin with. We can always train maybe sets of four to six at the highest and still get a shitload of hypertrophy just the same we would have, which means we spend more time training for strength, we have more time to deter- to actually get stronger, we spend less time in our total macro cycle, our total career, getting size, because we already have the size coming in, then we're better, right? But in addition to that, it offers another benefit. When you go into a peaking phase, if your peaking phase, the longer your peaking phase is, to an extent, the more neurally efficient and proficient you become at lifting heavy loads. However, very long peaking phases are untenable for drug-free athletes because of the fact that peaking is such a low volume of training, you start to lose muscle size. When you start to lose muscle size, your strength goes to hell and you can forget about peaking. So a drug-free athlete can pull off a peak of maybe a month in length, maybe two. An athlete using anabolics or some other kind of substances which help you with muscle mass can train in a peaking style, low reps, heavy weights, for longer without sacrificing his muscle mass. That way he can achieve a higher peak because he's training to be more specific. Now, there's ways around it for drug-free athletes. You can do a longer peak by in the middle of that peak or periodically coming back to higher reps and more volumes. But you have to recover from that, too. So it costs you. It costs you in, in adaptation. It costs you in time. So in any way you slice it, an athlete whose, hyper, hyper, whose hypertrophic benefits have been enhanced can mediate his training more towards peaking style, strength style, and then get more out of it. Now, is it a huge benefit in that regard? No, but it is big. That is for athletes who are already lean and already jacked and already within a specific weight class. For everyone else, anabolics have the additional benefit of just giving you more size. So if you are taking anabolics and you're not completely filled out or you're not in the weight class you want to be, you still should do sets of 6 to 10 because that's going to get you radical hypertrophy and you're going to get bigger and stronger and leaner, and you're going to be in another weight class altogether or fill out your own. But if you're in a position where you've filled out a weight class already, let's say you're in a 165, you're about as big as it gets for the 65, you can't cut any more weight, you're super lean, then you should bias your training away from hypertrophy training closer towards strength and peaking training so that you can get the most out of it because you don't have to worry about muscle size anymore as much as the drugs take care of more of that for you. It's interesting how history keeps coming back to the median, and I keep thinking of the late 80s, early 90s, and guys like Eddie Cohn and Kirk Karwaski, who spent literally 40 weeks a year doing five sets of five, and it, it's it's shockingly easy to elucidate how that happened when you begin to understand these simple principles. Totally. 
Totally. And, and they'll be the first guys to tell you that, look, if you're not using drugs or if you want to move up a weight class, you probably don't want to do it with 75. Exactly. Uh, you might want to go higher. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But, but yet it's incredibly relevant that what, why that worked and, and the fact that they were intelligent enough to, to identify that. Totally. And, you know, also a great example of that is the Bulgarian approach to weightlifting back in the day. You know, yeah. they could do a lot of singles and doubles and pretty much going to maxes all the time. And that's a, not a big deal if you have anabolics to handle both the recovery from that kind of training and supply the sufficient muscle mass. But when people try it, you know, you know, it, it's funny because the Bulgarians, that wasn't even their developmental program. That was their elite program only. Correct. And, uh, you know, it's one of these situations where now you have developmental lifters in the United States at these various lifting clubs. They're like, yeah, I'm training Bulgarian. And you got like 12-year-olds snatching, clean and jerking, and squatting for a max every day. And people are like, that's how the Bulgarians did it. And I was like, no, fucking idiot. That's not how they did it. You know, that what the Bulgarian was a 22-year-old fucking ex-convict who fucking had huge muscle already from other kinds of training. And, and they were on a ton of gear and could, could do that. And most of them didn't survive that anyway. And you got guys yeah. programming like that for drug-free people. So yeah, literally, you got, even, you got to keep even among those... Changes. Atypical specimens, the fallout rate was still like 80%. Yeah, nobody gave a shit. You're on a, a national team for a communist country. You were an expendable asset. And, you know, it's funny. It's, it's hilarious to me, having myself come from a communist country, for people to, to, to modify, or to adapt communist training to their own bodies when they live in a capitalist society. The first question I have for them is, do you, do you think of yourself as expendable? That's they don't. Well, that's how the coach's program, this program thinks of you. Do you really want to do it? Absolutely. And they're like, well, maybe not. Like, okay, maybe you should rethink that. Well, now, now you're, now you're asking Americans to consider social science. That's, that's probably a losing, even more of a losing battle than getting to understand physical science. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, I'm, I'm not particularly optimistic on the general public, so that's probably not a reasonable well, to now, take me down. Here, you know, I don't know why you're so pessimistic. We have two fine candidates, Trump and Hillary. I mean, they're amazing. I, you know, my, my, my question is, which one will I vote for? Because they're so good, both of them. I don't know. Can I take them both? I want to write them both in. I want Trump as president and Hillary as the vice, or flip-flops. That's what oh. I want, man. It's, it's looking great. Uh, yeah, wow. I'm in tears. Um, something you did bring up is something I actually want to, again, speak to my listeners, and I, I apologize for speaking around you, but um, I've, no relayed this, I've relayed this story more than once, and what you just said is really a great illustration of it, is talking about the Bulgarian program and how it was for the athletes, and the athletes' well-being was not particularly relevant, and it's imperative, you the listener, consider that what an athlete is doing or proposing or espousing at the moment is probably not what brought them to yep. the moment. That yep. is incredibly relevant. I personally had the only negative interaction I ever had with Dr. Fred Hatfield, um, who, who I love to death and is a good guy. Uh, the wacky Christian thing at the end of his life is a little separate, but I'll... Hmm, I don't know anything about it. that, actually. Oh, oh well. he's going <laughs> completely crazy Christian. It, 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 it makes me want to cry. Yikes. But that's a oh, separate well. subject. <laughs> um, but I had this, this this really big negative interaction with him yammering on about his crazy compensatory acceleration, which really wasn't crazy. It was relevant and scientifically based. But sure. my point was, okay, that's a great idea, but you're Fred fucking Hatfield. You squat a 1,000 pounds. I want to know what you might know that's relevant to squatting 700 pounds. Mm-hmm. And he could not come along with me on that intellectual journey, 
he's just kept going, but this is what I do. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm not fucking not you. Yeah, that's, you know, it's unfortunate when athletes at a high level, maybe I'm not, I think, I don't know about Fred, you would think he'd be aware of that, maybe he is. I can't speak to his experiences particularly, but what I can say is a little bit unfortunate when athletes forget that there's a basic structure, a long-term developmental structure of training, and they start recommending things to people that are not phase appropriate. You know, I've got plenty of people asking me now what how to train. The way I tell them how to train is based on the same theory as how I train, but the application is way different. You know, people say like, oh, you know, Doc, I saw you post a video of you doing the, you know, cable flies. Is that a good thing for me to do? I'll be like, how long have you been training? Like, oh, a year? I'll be like, oh, fuck that. Barbells, man. Barbells for almost all your training. Fuck cable flies. There's plenty of time when you're beat the shit, like when you're my age. And you're, you know, got more muscle and you can't afford another injury and you fucking do jujitsu for a hobby because you're an idiot. And, and, and there'll be plenty of time where you can train easier in the gym. And they'll say, oh, why do you do it? And they're like, well, exactly, that's why I do it. You know, you're not me. So it, I was coming up. I, I also did cable flies when I was younger, and that was a stupid decision. And as soon as I started doing, you know, barbell bench presses and uh, dumbbell flies, that's when I got the biggest. My text exploded. So while you can still get away with it, the compound heavy basics should be the basic basis of your routine. It's different advice than I currently give myself or that I would give high-level bodybuilders if I trained that. But nonetheless, it's correct because it's physically appropriate. It's, it, you know, what I do right now is not necessarily the right thing for everyone. I feel like it'd be great if more high-level athletes knew that. And, and you've got, of course, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the scene in American football, strength and conditioning, where, you know, whatever the NFL players are doing, right. Whatever the NFL players are doing, that's what you got to do. And a lot of NFL players say, you know, I work mostly on speed development. Power development, I really don't push my lift much, and I definitely don't do any high reps. Well, no shit, you're big and strong already, motherfucker. Like, exactly. You have, to you be have something to make power. 300 pounds. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know, yeah, I'd like to tune up my engine, too, if I have a fucking gigantic V12. But if I only have an inline four, maybe I should have some fucking cylinders to it before I start tuning them up. Unless you want to be like a fucking one of those, you know, people that races a Honda Civic or something, you know, which, by the way, is a car I have and I greatly love. <laughs> but it's just, I, I, uh, I consistently refer to that as waxing an unpainted car. Yeah, and I thought that when I heard you say that earlier, that was an absolutely great way to say it. <laughs> I, see, I see it all the time. I, I spend an enormous amount of time in the weight room, actually, you know, on the floor in the weight room. And I see just, literally, I'm not exaggerating, just hundreds of kids doing goofy speed drills and foot drills and stuff. And I'm like, you can't squat 135. What the fuck are you doing? Yeah, 100%. You know, in bodybuilding, this tends to be the case as well, where uh, <laughs> I overuse this analogy, but I think it's still pretty funny. I've, I've had kids ask me, like, you know, how do I get my inner chest to grow? <laughs> I, I, I'm, not, I'm not nearly this mean in person, but my first reaction and what to want to say is be like, what inner chest? They'd be like, well, this one. I'd be like, you don't have a chest, motherfucker. You know, yep. I'm not like, what, what are you talking about? Build a chest first, then you can worry about shaping it. You don't shape. You know, you get a big slab of clay first before shaping it. You don't just put extra clay on top. It's not work. So, yep. you know, but they, you know, and there's another, there's, um, difficult for people to accept that, especially when their favorite bodybuilders and favorite athletes train like that. Because there's a lot of in training in which people just want to get better, but there's also a lot where people just want to do the stuff they see their heroes do. You want to be like a hero, you know? There's How many people? But it has totally. to be relevant to something. You bet. And, and, and unless, you know, when you see a karate movie when you're five years old and you start karate kicking everything, you're also you're also emulating, but it's not productive emulation. Correct. You know, it's it's important for us to delineate that. And if you're you know a fucking adult male who bought a fucking gym membership, you would so fucking hope that you could do adult emulation. You know what I mean? Like, you would think, but it doesn't. You it would, you truly would think. does not work that way. It's it's sad. 
Um, yep. Dr. Mike, let me let me continue this just a little bit longer. You've been in extraordinarily generous, and we've crossed the hour mark, I'm sure. Um, but just because it is, again, it's the other unspoken. We've talked about training. We've even talked about the influence of drugs on training. Where do you stand nutritionally? Um, we had Lyle um, McDonald. I don't know if you know the name, but Lyle is sure. a nutritional genius. He's, he's He's a love-it-or-hate-it guy. You either really, really like him or you fucking can't bear him. Uh, personally, I get on great with the guy. I find him brilliant. Um, and he, he's done two different shows on nutrition, but a fat loss and a mass accruement show. And uh, he's really covered nutrition. But since this is you and your concept and, and attitude, where do you stand on nutrition relevant to what we've talked about, hypertrophy? Oh, yeah. So there's a priority list for what to attend to number one is calories it's really difficult to build muscle and allow outside of the presence of a hypercaloric diet so you want to make sure you're consuming enough calories for growth and gaining some weight over time because you can't build something out of nothing uh after that you know your calories are taken care of you want to make sure you have a sufficient amount of protein around a gram per protein per pound of body weight per day usually produces very good results it's two very... grams per kilograms the standard prescription yep. i would yep. say yep so it's not really Anything too revolutionary, I think that you have to have enough carbohydrates to produce adequate training stimulus. If you drop your carbs too low by raising your fats or proteins too high, uh, just running out of room to put in calories, you end up screwing yourself over because uh, you can't produce a lot of energy and good recovery, and there's probably some anabolic signaling that only really carbs do well. So I would say carbs should pair to training volumes. I'd say for someone who's training really hard for hypertrophy, anywhere between 1.5 and 2 grams of carbs per pound of body weight per day on average is pretty good. Um, so for a 200 pound person, it would be like, you know, 300 to 400 grams of carbs a day. And, uh, on top of that, fats fill up the rest. You should try to eat most of your fats as more monounsaturated heavy fat sources, like olive oil, uh, nuts, nut butters, canola oil, that sort of thing, because it's healthy and actually probably promotes more muscle growth. Timing should be sensible is probably a, a good idea for the promotion of hypertrophy and for the reduction of atrophy to consume something that contains plenty of protein, evenly dispersed through the day, rough, roughly, at, at the very least, I think, six-hour intervals. So anywhere between four and six meals a day is probably where, where that optimum exists for most people. And the meal should have approximately even amounts of protein. I think to fuel the training process and promote adequate recovery, especially if you're training multiple times a day, you should have most of your carbohydrates or more of your carbohydrates structured around your training window and fewer uh, of them and more of your fats structured far outside the training window. And uh, supplements barely work at all. There's like a couple that do anything. And where you get your food source from points? is very minor. Yeah, that's I, I, general I, I personally word everything different, but I pretty much agree with everything you said. <laughs> okay. No, I, 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 my, my attitude is um, a more of a prescriptive method. I tell people two grams per kilogram of protein, one gram per kilogram of fat, carbohydrates equal your necessary energy balance. Mm -hmm. and, and that's pretty much, I mean, I can write it on a business card. Yeah. I, I go about it uh, just a little bit differently because I put carbs as ranked higher than fats. But that's, I think, a minor concern as long as you're, until you get into a really extreme contest dieting for a fat Exactly. And that's, and that's a point I make to people over and over and over is the, the last 10 weeks preparing for a bodybuilding contest are completely outside of the normal biological realms and just shouldn't be considered until you get there. Totally. I absolutely agreed. Um, yeah. And, and, and as for, <laughs> go ahead. That, well, no, that's pretty much that's pretty much what I was you know looking for. Is I mean, you're really just 
parroting and, and not that you're parroting. I mean, you're 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 fucking PhD. I'm not being an ass, but I mean, you're pretty much elucidating that the general dogma of you know, sports nutrition is pretty much what it is. Yeah, there's a lot of research to consider there, and there's a lot of uphill battle if you have any other kind of ideas. When I get into little stripes with keto advocates every now and then. Eventually, Dave Palumbo will actually die from ketogenics, and we won't have to talk about him anymore. (laughs) Well, I used to be a really big fan of Dave Palumbo, and uh, I I really uh, tried his methods for a long time, and I didn't see the greatest results. And eventually, when I learned more physiology, I saw why that was the case. I think he does have some really great bright points that he always talked about, but I'm not, you know, unfortunately I, I, I can't subscribe to the low carb lifestyle. And I think that's, uh, you know, people, they, they, there's probably about, I don't know, anywhere between 10 and 50 studies which show that low carbs aren't nearly as bad as people thought. And, uh, these studies are paraded around in low carb psycho literature. Uh, and you get quite used to seeing them. And, and what they're not showing you is the roughly 1,000 studies of comparable magnitude that show that carbs are a really, really good idea. <laughs> so it's one of those situations where it's, it's putting on the blinders big time. And I think that well, there's times and places I, I for lower carbs. I think even, but, I, I think even personal offense outside of the scientific and, and, and intellectual offense to the fact that, you, like you said, an enormous portion of the literature is being ignored. But the, the part that really offends me is, um, Really, that was just all stolen from a far greater mind in that, it, you know, Dan Duchesne, who kind of was the, not not the originator, the, the low-carb thing goes all the way back to the 1800s. Um, sure. There's a, a study, uh, uh, an actual paper you could find, uh, PubMed, uh, what was that called? A, an Open Letter on Corpulence. Is the title of it. It was written. Oh by yeah, a, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was written by a doctor in like the 1860s. Yeah, yeah, and he said stay away from cakes and treats and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, so I mean, but but Dan Duchesne was really the the person who brought low carbs to athletics. And the thing that was true, the thing that was wonderful about Dan that does not apply to Dave Palumbo and many of the other advocates is Dan pointed out that bodybuilders have the heavy propensity to use large amounts of anabolic steroids. Anabolic mm-hmm. steroids are very good at storing cellular creatine phosphate and water, mm-hmm. hence they bloat mm-hmm. you. By eliminating or at least radically reducing one's carbohydrates, you can mitigate that without additional drugs. And I found that, you know, if you use that logic, that's completely rational. But it doesn't really apply to Joe Average now, does it? Uh, yeah, and it's certainly for general training, general performance, even with bodybuilding, you don't want to go low-carb too often. You exactly. know, and it's funny because it's one of those, like, uh, the keto-adapted folks like to say, well, you're not keto-adapted yet. Well, how fucking long is it going to take? Well, uh, you know, it's like saying you, you, you can use the butt sex in jail. Well, you probably right. do, but it's still not you your do. first choice. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> I, couldn't have put it, I couldn't have put it better. And, and, you know, having enjoyed the butt sex I had in jail, I think it's the greatest. <laughs> you know, that, it's a relevant point. There you go. Doctor, I think we have covered all the relevant points. Um, Please tell everyone out there where they can find more Dr. Mike Isratel. Where where can they get more of you? Cool. Yeah, thanks. So um, renaissanceperiodization.com. Renaissance Periodization is a company I co-founded. We write books. We uh, sell templates for training and diet that have been very successful. We have uh, a lot of coaches there with qualifications more impressive than my own personal coaching for all sorts of sports. We have world champions, PhDs coaching. It's really kind of cool. 
in addition to that, uh, at RP Strength on Instagram is a great little link to follow with tons of our stuff on it. On Instagram, I'm at RP Dr. Mike. And then uh, on Facebook, I'm Mike Isertel. I have a public account. Come follow me. Ask me questions. I answer questions on Facebook all the time. I don't answer questions on Instagram because uh, it's, like, too much to follow. And, you know, like, the, you know, the response stuff is, like, there's not internally separated threads. So it's really weird to follow and just get – I'm not, like, engaging in technical discourse with under 100 words or whatever. I, that's really dumb. So uh, Instagram, if you would like to see pictures of food and muscles or whatever the fuck I post on there, you can follow me on that. Facebook, much more intellectual content. I would recommend that. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Renaissance, we're going to – we're just started working on uh, templates for male hypertrophy training. Uh, and it's going to be multiple, how, uh, multiple. timely. Yeah, so uh, we're just getting started on that. We have our first draft of processes, and we're going to be making that into a template. So uh, hopefully within the next several months it'll be released. It's been very eagerly waited. I have people who message me once a week or post on my wall and say, hey, you asshole, I've noticed you post a lot about other shit. Please work on the templates, you piece of shit. And I'm like, God damn it. So uh, now we're working on them, and hopefully they'll be out, and hopefully they'll be good. But in any case, uh, yeah, you don't have to buy shit from me. Just uh, tune in to Facebook and stuff, and we'll have some good chats, and I'm always open to discussion, and I, I don't get offended. So, yeah. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, I, I have to confess, my listenership is somewhat small, but they're very, very active. I get a lot of... Uh, as soon as I post something, I get a lot of feedback, a lot of uh, responses, questions, accusations, cool. all, all sorts I'll, of things. I'll, I'll bring them all on. <laughs> so I will, I will go out of my way to forward some of that material to you. And to all the listeners awesome. right now, I will include as many of those links as I can in the body of the uh, description for this particular podcast. Um, Dr. Mike, anything you'd like to say, thank uh, anyone you need to tell the fuck off, anything important going on? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on this uh, webcast, and, and uh, I'm just very honored to be interviewed, and I thought it was a really great discussion, and you, sure, you certainly know your shit, it's a real pleasure. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, that's, you know, I, I try very hard to stay within my niche and not, not speak outside of my zone, but when I'm talking to somebody like you, I feel like I'm really right there, and I can, I can contribute, so, um, but really, I have to turn that the other way is... Um, you know, to have somebody, I have no letters after my name. So to, to get a PhD to take the time to sit and talk with me, I, I personally take that as an honor. So thank you. Well, geez, no problem at all. My pleasure. And uh, as I tell almost all of my guests, and certainly this applies to you, at any point in time, if you have something to say, this is an open forum for you. Awesome. So with that, listeners, Tune in next month to Sports Performance Radio for another exciting guest, and thanks for listening. Don't forget to sign up for the SPR and Evil Genius Sports Performance Newsletter via the Team Evil GSP website. Thank you for listening to Sports Performance Radio.